Welcome to another edition of Full Metal RPG. I am your host, Brendan. And I'm your host, Ben. Episode 10, correct? Well, you know, that's the thing, Ben, is we are um, getting ready to do this thing here where we're going to be, like, doing a bunch of episodes. We're going to be releasing them all in sort of a blitz. That's true. So when this actually sees the light of day, I don't know if this is actually going to be episode 10 or not. We Fair warning, see. I guess. We shall see. This is episode X. We're just going to call this episode X. And in fact, I think from the from the from this point forward, we're probably just not going to say what episode it is. It's just going to be episode whatever. So we're about to make Deadpool today then, huh? But the, oh, oh yeah, is, that, is that a Weapon X reference? <laughs> yes. For the nerds? Yes, <laughs> For the obviously. nerds. Those comic nerds that are listening. Ugh. It's just the worst. Anyway, um, JK, I definitely went through that. Yes. Yes, it did. Yeah, right. Um, as did many. So, uh, today we have a special guest, um, a uh, sort of Phoenix area gaming titan. Um, he's going to be stopping by. We're going to be talking about the uh, social contract that you enter at the table when you sit down with your friends and game. Um, but before that, I guess we'll just discuss the old As the Abyss game. What do you think? I think that sounds like a wonderful idea. All right. Well, where do you think we should get started on that? Well, um, you know, sort of uh, pick up where we left off. I mean, we... Uh, where did we leave off? Well, I think uh, we sort of left off, I think, kind of kind of a sour note the last time talking about it. I mean... <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like totally gloomy, huh? I was like the super gloomy guy. Yeah. I think the, the, the incessant travel had sort of like, uh, you know, let's just say it tested your fortitude. I, here's the thing. I've never run a game that was like based on um, just kind of bumbling around the wilderness, like quote unquote encountering things. I've never run one of those. I've always run games that either have like a very, very kind of like tight story or that are confined to a particular geographic area. And um, these uh, random encounters just bum me the fuck out. Like, I just, I mean. Um, well, the, the, the day of the random encounter finally came to an end. Well, for the time being. That's true. I am actually uh, have been reading Vornheim quite a bit. We'll get to that in a second. But um, uh, Zach S. has uh, this huge uh, city random encounters table in there to kind of spice things up a little bit. And it's much more interesting than what you find in Out of the Abyss. Well, I have a question to ask you based on that. Then we'll ask when we get to the part in the 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 story here about our uh, our uh, game, anyway. Okay, cool. So you we I guess I was feeling glum about the game. I was feeling really gloomy about the whole fucking thing. I was just getting ready to like grab all my game notes and just wad them up in a big ball and like throw them out in a lake somewhere, a dark lake. <laughs> yes. And now uh, you feel a little bit re-energized. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about doing the podcast about this is you kind of get to revisit the old stuff, especially considering how far ahead we, we, we usually get um, uh, of ourselves. And so you can, you're kinda, I kind of revisit myself six weeks in the past. And um, it's interesting because there's there have been times I've been, like, really high on this game. I've been like, yeah, man, this game's freaking great. And then, like, the last couple times we've, we've met, I've been like, 
you know, it's the pits. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's quit. <laughs> no, let's I mean, something else. I mean, um, I think that you know, the last little bit of traveling was probably the best of the traveling in a certain way. Mm, you think so? Oh man, I really enjoyed that glimpse of the Black Library we all got. I thought that was great. Oh right, right. You mean the last session? I see what you're saying. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Well, I mean, it was sort of like the last traveling that we did, right? It was like sure. sort of the last leg of the journey to Mantle Dareth. Um, we had a glimpse of uh of uh the Black Library, which is a location that uh, one of the members of our party is searching for quite heavily or quite uh, um, devotedly. Yeah, this is Baracus. Baracus yes. Tiefling is uh, is is trying to find his way into this sort of like quasi mythological um, uh, structure, and I think that the party is calling it the Black Library right now. We don't have like an actual name for it. Yeah, I mean that's just sort of I think what it's been what we've sort of uh, settled for calling it. Um, it appeared in front of us, and uh, in quite a, I guess, horrific fashion, where it uh, assaulted a few of our minds. Um, with the, its, like, there were madness checks taken. Yeah. Um, myself and uh, Baracus, I think, the, um, the mm-hmm. two characters most interested in this black library. Um, we, uh, we clearly wanted to visit the black library, but the rest of the party, uh, with the, maybe an exception here or there, was uh, not too keen on that, as it seemed obviously um, treacherous, dangerous, mystical... Um, horrible. Uh, you take your pick of any one of those adjectives, and it, it it seemed like it was going to be problematic. Yeah, I was I was trying to like kind of set this mood where we were talking about kind of like this uh very kind of like chthonic artifice that was, or rather edifice that was um on the edge of the dark lake. They were floating through the dark lake and they saw it, and uh, the architecture was supposed to be sort of like mind-bending and impossible and straddle the boundary between, you know, stone and flesh and its geometry was was warped by this sort of, like, temporal phase shift that they were trying to, like, view it through. And, um, and it did try and drive them mad just merely gazing upon it. Yeah, I think I particularly enjoyed the bits of, like, uh, sort of, like, the 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 temporal mishmash of like beings through time visiting this like horrific place. I thought that was uh, quite fun. Um, and certainly oh, lent good. to I'm the, glad, lent to the atmosphere like of uh, the this, this sort of weird mystical atmosphere of the place. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I was definitely like riffing pretty hard on uh, Michael Moorcock right there. I was like, I, I, as I was describing the scene, I was, I was, I was remembering uh, the scene in Elric when he is, He's like swimming through the fog, and he comes upon the boat that is occupied with the um, like the alternate dimension versions of himself. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it. I. I mean, it, it came across, and it was it was uh, quite awesome. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. I had fun with it too. Yeah, you know, and and much sort of like uh, these sort of like transient uh, uh, like encounters. It it disappeared shortly afterwards. Um, and we were unable to visit it. Yeah, ju- just when they thought they were up- upon it, it gave way into mist, and the fog that had been choking them just moments before was suddenly behind them, and before them was the harbor to Mantal Derith, 
and Barak is the tiefling who believes that inside of this um, library he can find the secrets to um, releasing his uh, devilish father, his infernal father from hell to create some sort of like reign of hell on earth. He went, he went like kind of bonkers trying to get people to paddle backwards and, and then, um, ended up stabbing the, uh, the, <laughs> the boatman. Yeah. The NPC who said something like, you're a fool. And, uh, and Baracus, uh, in a, in a very, in a very Jeff kind of way, just fucking kill them out. Yeah. Um, the boatman ended up being saved. Um, we uh, we tended to his wounds. Well, in 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 Kale Kale the Paladin's most paladinly moment, he um. Hey, I was the first one to try and save the boatman. <laughs> well, he the first thing he did was try to avenge the boatman, and he pushed <laughs> he pushed he put he's, he is an avenging paladin. Let's keep that clear. True. And he pushed Baracus into the into the into the water, and uh, then had to subsequently save Baracus because Baracus is like um. I, I had him roll some dice, you know, to make this kind of official or whatever, and uh, uh, he wasn't doing well with the swimming. So then, so then, uh, uh, Kale the Paladin, who has this uh, this this armor that he found um, in a random encounter that allows him to swim, and ended up being like very useful in the Dark Lake. <laughs> Definitely, it's, it's it's full plate armor that lets him swim in it. So he he jumped in and pulled uh, he pulled Baragas out. Uh, meanwhile, Ming Hao was tending to the wounds of of Kleb Kleb. The or is it Clib? It's Clib. You're the one who calls him Clib. I I don't know. Maybe that's the case. It could entirely be possible. Clib. It's Clib the Kuatoa. At this point, I think Meng Hao sort of views Clib as like one of his vassals, and uh, I don't know Clib sees it yet, but that's definitely probably the case. Oh, you think so? Because you know, I was talking to Dustin uh, later on after this, and he was saying because 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 uh, Meng Hao. Just is using his medicine to try and stabilize Clib because in the single hit that Baracus laid on on Clib, he didn't kill him, and uh, so rather than just adjudicating that that Clib was dead, which was my first instinct, um, the party seemed very interested in trying to save his life, so I I allowed them to, and Meng Hao saved, uh, he stabilized Clib. And then affording Kale the time to come and lay on hands, which is the most paladinly thing he's done up till this point. <laughs> it is true. It is it, the most paladinly thing he's done. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at that point, you guys could see Mantal Darith in front of you, and you brought the ship into port. Yeah. Um, we landed, um, and uh, we're immediately asked for documents. Well, I mean. So, I, I hate to say this again, but because I feel like I've just said this so many times in regards to this campaign, but I didn't care for what they did with Mantle Dereth, <laughs> so <laughs> I rewrote it. And it's a big city, and I had to do. There was a, I, I felt like there was a lot of work to do for it, and to be totally honest, combined with my sort of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not ennui, but like. The sort of apathy that was growing in me about the Out of the Abyss game in general. I was much more excited about some other kind of like role-playing opportunities that were presenting themselves. For instance, a vampire game that's about to launch. And uh, um, just been reading a lot of Lamentations of the Flame Princess books. And recently picked up another uh, clone game, another retro clone game called Labyrinth Lord. And that has my, my brain like tingling with ideas. 
And so I just, I, on some level, I just couldn't be bothered with fucking out of the abyss. But I've, out of a sense of solemn duty, I was just going to carry this torch forward. I, that, that's how I am as just a person. I, I, I'm the guy who sees the, the idea through to the bitter fucking end. Through the highs and through the lows, I will go to the bitter fucking end when everybody just quits in disgust. Uh, this is how I also do relationships of the romantic <laughs> nature, by the way. I'm never the first one to quit. They always got to punch out. Um, so, so I was reading Vornheim because I recently got Vornheim. Uh, I just found it on the shelf at a, at, a, at a local game store. I flipped out when I found it. And... Um, I was reading through Vornheim trying to get an idea of how to put together Mantel de Rith without essentially writing a 200-page swords book that no one would ever see except for me. And I have to just thank Zach S. real quick here for a second. I have to thank uh, James Ragey. I have to thank Lamentations of the Flame Princess for saving my D&D game because without that Vornheim book, I probably would have just chucked in the towel on Out of the Abyss it just simplified your city building so much. It just it's in the way that all Lamentations games do, I feel it just it had me just look at the process so differently. And uh I've I've been kind of doing a lot of running lately. I've become I've become like a quote-unquote runner. I'm really more like a jogger. I'm not fast enough to be a runner. Anyway, um I've just been thinking about the game in my on on my runs, my daily runs. And that is literally all the prep that I took into that game. That is 100% of the prep I took into that game was just stuff that I had thought about while jogging. And I and I felt like we were in a really good session. Yeah, um, it was pretty fun. We got to the city. We, you know, managed to get through the encounter with the the port authority. Oh, the port authority, right? That was my what my huge tangent was coming off. There was a point to all that, and that is is that is that. I have rewritten Mantal Derith to be ruled by the the Zentarum from the surface world. This is not the case in the core books. The Zentarum is there, but they're not the rulers. And I have said no a couple j- decades ago. The Zentarum essentially staged a coup, and now they run a city. Because I wanted to have more Zentarum. I think that that thought that would be interesting. And um, so then these guys had had uh, like a, a very lawful evil encounter where this guy like showed up and was basically grinding them like for a bunch of like fees and. Like, where's your seals, and where's your contracts, and where's your licenses, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, we were able to present uh, some of that information, uh, but some of our cargo wasn't licensed. It was uh, cargo we found during the adventure. Contraband. Contraband, correct. It just so happens that uh, Kale had a uh, magical pouch, which could store all that. And uh, we smuggled it into, uh, or I guess you'd say on the outskirts of Mantle Dareth, because we're not really in the city proper yet, because we don't have the proper licensing to get in. Yeah, yeah, you don't have the proper, like, seals and uh, and uh, uh, medallions of, of authority to actually enter the city proper. And now that you're mentioning it, like, Kale's really been on the receiving end of the fucking magic item love, hasn't he? <laughs> Home- homeboy's got, homeboy's stacked with that, with that, Plus one armor, the plus one full plate, and the haversack. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely uh, rocking some uh, magic gears. But, uh, you know, I mean, easy come, easy go sometimes, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing is that, like, 
I need to round out. I need, we need okay. This this is good because this helps me get some goals because we need to have some encounters. First of all, we've had some pretty crummy encounters. The Dark Lake encounters kind of sucked, with the exception of the um, the Green Hag that they met. Um, so we need to have some fun encounters that are kind of like gritty. You know what I'm saying? Okay. We need to get you guys some magic items because at this point only Kale has them, and then you guys are get are, are are about to enter what I would consider to be like book two of 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 this cycle, right? Um, and in book two, there's a magic item that's basically for Kale. I know it's for Kale. I mean, it's in the book, <laughs> and I'm like ready for I'm ready for him to take it. I can't give him this fucking thing. He's, he's just going to be so stacked compared to the rest of you guys. So I need to get some good fucking encounters with some good fucking loot for the rest of the party. Uh, sure. I will not object to that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the actual uh, fighting encounter we had this session, which was, uh, uh, you know, a couple of the more scurrilous of the patrons of uh, Mantle, or not even patrons, but... I guess like uh, traveling uh, merchants of uh, that were visiting Mantel Dareth overheard us talking about contraband and decided they wanted to steal it for themselves. Um, so we were assaulted uh, on the way to where else but the tavern. Yeah. Um, yeah. At last, there was going to be a tavern scene. Yeah, uh, we were assaulted by uh, a few uh, mangy drow and. Uh, few ogres yeah yeah ogres really hit hard they do yeah the the the, the player characters don't know this yet and it's fine i can by the time they hear this they'll know but the drow these are this group of drow males who in drow society are like the underclass and and these guys are also sort of like fringe drow males so they're not what you'd call enfranchised they're they're peddling wares on the dark lake they're not part of what you would call like you know, the center of drought culture by a stretch of the imagination. So they overhear Mannix, who's, like, bumping his gums on the fucking pier about, like, oh, what about the, the, the illegal goods that we have or whatever? And they overhear him, right? Yes. Yes. He, uh, you know, um, I guess it's a good thing we're not on the lake because, like they say, loose lips sink ships. And his, <laughs> his lips seem to be quite loose. <laughs> Yeah, he definitely like has. Uh, I I don't know if it's the way that uh, uh, Alex is playing the character, or if it's the character himself. He 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 has this way of saying things that arouse the ire of my NPCs, um, <laughs> and uh, and so they so they overheard, and then they kind of like decided to bide their time. They went into this um, uh, uh, fringe area on the outskirts of Mantel Dirith, and they um hired themselves some uh, <coughs> ogre muscle, and then they brought it in to waylay the party. And before that happened, like while while these ro- these these drow rogues were off uh, hiring these ogres with coin, um, the party said goodbye to a couple NPCs. Yes, uh, Huntress has gone her way to, uh, uh, I guess, find the surface world. Um, Jazrid has has apparently a secret way into the city 
um, that requirement was to join him in his weird religion. Well, I mean, I know that's what you guys all heard. I don't think that he, he at no point did he say like you must join my religion. He just wanted you guys. He, he kind of was giving you guys like the the Jehovah's Witness kind of like like hard sell, you know, like. Yeah, I've heard that sell before. It starts off like, "Hey, just come check it out," and then it's like, <laughs> "It's like uh, you come into the mixer on like Sunday, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. and then it's all of a sudden, you know, that's you're worshiping <laughs> giant slimes and oozes." That's I don't of, know what to say. That's kind of what he wanted to do. Was he wanted to you guys to just 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 come down? Remember, remember when um we went to that? Did you ever get? Did you ever get get huckstered and going to that Primerica meeting with Greg? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So so Ben and I went to a Primerica meeting for our friend Greg, who was a uh, who was a member of a pyramid scheme for a while. It's not it's not pyramid schemes. It's Greg geome- will certainly tell you it was not a pyramid scheme. <laughs> you, you know what they call those now? They call them geometric marketing. I actually I, I swear to God. But I mean like a pyramid is geometry too. Sure. Hey Greg, if you're listening to this, we love you, man. I'm just busting your chops. It just makes don't for, sell me any more term life insurance. <laughs> it makes for a good story all these years later. Anyway, um yeah, that's kind of what Jazz was tying you up for. Just come down and hear our pitch, but the pitch is going to be very long and very scary. Yeah. I, I actually, I thought it was uh, interesting to note that the a lot of the rest of the party seemed like they were going to go with Jazz, or they were like willing to follow him, which to me was very strange, considering that most of them felt he was like a raving madman. That's um, true. I think I was the only one who didn't think he was a raving madman, or at least not in the same way that they felt he was a raving madman. You see, Ben's character kind of like Jezred's always going on about how like the the world of Toril is about to see like a new shift and like a balance of power as like uh, beings that were once relegated to darkness will like you know cleave out their kingdoms in the world of men, and um, everybody's always looking at Jezred like you're bonkers, you're a fucking weirdo. But like Ben's character Meng Hao is always kind of like like you know rubbing his chin and being like hmm I don't know. I uh, I see it, and uh, I just want to carve out for myself some of that. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, best of luck to you, my friend. Yeah, that's that's my goal anyway. We'll see where I get. Yeah, know? we'll see how that goes because um, yeah, there's we haven't we haven't completely thrown out the out of the abyss book. I mean, no, we'll, no, no, no. I, I at some point I'll have to I'll have to climb up uh, over the corpse of Demogorgon. It'll happen, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Jazred, but, I mean, no, you're... Oh, no, no. You're keeping your, your sights high. Oh, absolutely. If you don't aim high, then are you going to left with this being at the bottom? That's true. Well, I mean, that is the secret of archery. Um, yeah. So, to that to that effect, um, we got mugged, essentially, yeah, by yeah, uh, yeah. Drow with o- Ogre Muscle, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> to which we uh, fought them off. Or at least murdered all the drow. How, how how long? How many rounds do you think that combat was? I, by the BT dubs. Now that I'm like reinvigorated about this game, I'm writing some real encounters for you guys, like real motherfucking nice. encounters. That's good. Not just like some off the hip kind of like seeing how this goes type shit, but like I am I am really getting tired of Jeff's like fireballs, like <laughs> incinerating my encounters. Two fireballs, listeners. Two fireballs. Yeah, two fireballs um, incinerated quite a few drow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The drow went down like flies. They did. Encounter. Um, I guess I sort of I held off the two ogres behind us. When I say held off, I did actually manage to kill one, but I was almost beaten. I think to a few inches of my life there at that point. How many hit points did you have left? 
I think I had about 12 or something like that. Ooh, that could have been bad. Yeah, it could have been real bad. That could have been bad for you. It, it was a give and take where uh, I was beaten down and getting beat down. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But as, as usual, the party kind of like allowed uh, Meng Hao to hold the line while they kind of willy-nilly'd about and did their things. Um, yeah, and, it, and you know, the... The party was kicking out some jams, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, like, I do, I do. <laughs> like, Seijin was uh was stabbing some ogres quite uh quite handily, um, you know, uh, uh, Baracus was burning them down. Yeah. Um, we finally like hit this point where we had to think one ogre incapacitated, the other one was nearly dead, and uh, they were the last last two beings left in the encounter that were against us. Yeah. Uh, to which I yelled at uh, the one who seemed like he was the leader of the ogres, um, serve me and live or uh, continue to fight and die, to which he swore allegiance. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a unique role-playing opportunity that you afforded me there, and I thought it required some um, non-conventional thinking on your part, and I appreciate that you bring that to my game and that you bring that to the table and that you lead the other members of the group by example in doing that. Because D and D folks, it 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 can be about the genocidal killing of people who are not like you, but it it doesn't have quite to a few be. games like that. Yeah, it does. Over years. Yeah, right. It does not have to be. It can be about other things. And um, I am much more likely to reward a player who says something like, well, I want to press these guys into service, then I am to just ha- wait for somebody to be like, oh, well, I'm 15th level, which means now followers start showing up, and I need to like go to the woods and build a tower for my followers to live in. Like, I mean, I mean come on. That's you know? pretty boring. Yeah, I mean, that's where I, I think that the mechanics have to give way to the story. And on some level, there's nothing super disbalancing about you having these two ogres. It's all dependent on how you use them. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, I I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm a student of these storytelling games, and um, Ben has has given me, he's afforded me as a GM, new opportunities to tell stories by introducing these ogre NPCs, and and that's great because we just had a whole bunch of fucking NPCs. We had like you know 13 NPCs in the fucking Velkenvir cells or something that nobody gave a shit about, and one of them looks super fucking metal and cool. Because he's got like a melted eye from the fireballs. Oh, the ogre, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, I know. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so you know, it's 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 already becoming it's already becoming characterful, you know, and um, you know, and uh, Clib uh s- s- swore his allegiance to uh Kale for yeah, for saving Clib, his Clib life. Clib just didn't know that I was the one that was on the front lines there for him, but uh, yeah, he'll 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 eventually see the light. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, no, yeah, Kale, no, Kale, if you're listening, um. Yeah, enjoy Justin doesn't listen to this podcast. Enjoy your, dubs. I, I know he doesn't, but uh, but just the off chance he does, he's your follower. I won't touch him. <laughs> and you won't touch him. You'll just you'll just kill Kale and then <laughs> take all of his things. I don't want to kill Kale. Right. Kale's, Kale's my awesome brother, Marshall brother, who uh, doesn't mind murdering people who <laughs> who uh, need to be murdered. Kale is also like the. Um, the best essentially like doorstop in the party because like with between that armor and his uh, and his unbelievable martial abilities not only is he impossible to to hit he's almost impossible to wound so you can just like sit him somewhere and he can like hold down a line right there yes that is definitely a thing but you know here we are we're at like you guys are level five 
been playing the game for a few months now. Like three months or three, three, three months ish, right? Four months, something like that. And I'm, I'm totally done with the easy shit. It's like I'm right on. We're gonna, I'm like especially after. Here, okay, here, here's 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 what broke me. Yeah, as a GM, there's always a moment where I get broken. Okay. Like, there's always a moment where I... Because I always feel like I enter into these things in good faith, and I'm like, oh, we're all just going to have fun, we're all going to hunt some dungeons, and blah, 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 blah. And then there's a moment where I'm like, that's it. Now I'm coming for you fucks. And that moment happened in this game when Barack has dropped his second fireball on my ogres. And, I, and what had been a minute before, like a cool, interesting kind of... Uh, uh, encounter where it's like the party was not evenly matched and it looked kind of challenging and fun and like it might go for a few rounds and not just be over in like three rounds or something. All of a sudden it went down the toilet with all my other well-laid plans. Well, they're not very well-laid. But anyway, I was just like, you know what? Okay, so so if just generating off-the-cuff encounters are not going to be are not going to be interesting to you guys. If you're just going to sit there microwaving everything, then that means I'm going to have to start writing shit to come for you. You know what that means? You guys just entered a fucking city that's like the fucking most Eisley, the fucking Underdark. That means that there's fucking drow Great. assassins. Great. It means there's fucking I love undead. It. I love it. That means you know, I've already, I've already voiced my desires for this to you. I want to I wanna rule the slums and then gradually work my way up until I until I I rule with an iron <laughs> fist over uh you know well, let's, the hoity toity. Let's see if you survive, man. Because I'm I, hey, you know what I'm, I'm bringing. I, I'm it's bring, great. I think it's awesome. I'm bringing gnomes with 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 with, with lightning bolt wands, dude. I'm I'm bringing <laughs> fucking it. Gnomes? Dude. Oh, yeah, man. man. You're gonna you guys are gonna be fucking. You guys are gonna rue the day. I'm gonna punt those fucking stunts. Yeah, you know. Okay, here's here's what it, here's what here's here's the problem with fucking Baracus, right? Baracus is a tiefling warlock, okay? I don't even know how a fucking tiefling warlock is two fireballs in a day. I need to look that up. But um he he's he's in the in the D&D-ish way, he now he he he's one of these types of tieflings where his tiefling power is that he he gains hit points when he kills something. So he's essentially found a way to completely like undercut the squishiness of being a spellcaster. So not only does he walk around with mage armor up all the time, like um, he uh, he gets hit points back every time he's hit. Yeah, so, I noticed that. That's uh, yeah. quite the thing. So I can't even bum rush him because usually you just bum rush <laughs> the wizard. You know what I'm saying? You can't even do that shit anymore. <laughs> all right. So here we are. We've gone on too long. It's time for us to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to have Ben Mandel. We're going to talk about some uh, gamer social content. We're going to some role playing. Can't wait to see you in a few minutes. We are back uh, from a break. Here we are with uh, Ben, who this is not co-host Ben. This is new Ben. Uh, are you sure are we all not really one conglomerate entity at our core? I'm not. Well, I'm not really sure that at all. I'm not really sure of that at all. And um, I may just not realize I'm part of that entity. I guess. To be totally honest, I, I mistake myself for for this Ben quite a bit. For all so. we know, we are some hybrid of vicissitude and dementation gone awry. Th- y- Yahtzee. Yahtzee. <laughs> or 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 we are just programs in a virtual adept's uh, uh, simulation. Eh, it's been done. <laughs> Why don't uh, you tell us about yourself? Introduce yourself here. So I met these guys through a competition called. Well, actually, I should go even further back. Ben is a geek I've known since high school. 
True. And I can actually thank his father for many of my own hideously geeky tendencies. <laughs> and Brendan I met recently by hosting a competition called Iron GM. For those of you who may not have heard of it, think the old cooking show Iron Chef, but for RPGs. The GMs get three secret ingredients, one hour to prepare, and three and a half hours to run an adventure for their players. I was the MC that day, and the schmuck over here just happened to take first place. Yeah, that was a good time. That was a really good time. And you've taken first place in a competition like that before as well, correct? First place about four years ago for Arizona. Nice. I've taken second place as well, and have managed third place at the Nationals at Gen Con. Wow. Wow. That's... that's uh prestigious my friend i am very happy about it yeah no doubt no doubt I, and i take it you'll be competing at um uh the comic con in what is it july well right now they're still finalizing the schedule i have submitted iron jam as my event because it is unlikely though i'm certainly not speaking for comic con they probably don't have the budget to do the full formal iron gm that they did a couple of years ago so I'm offering to run it as a local event, much smaller budget, but still a damn good time. So I won't be competing if that happens, since as the MC, that would not be fair of me at all. Yeah, that wouldn't be kosher. But if I'm able to go to Gen Con this summer, I'll get to compete there. See, Ben and I sadly have decided to withdraw our Gen Con plans this summer. We are, we are, yeah. instead. We got other plans that yeah. I think uh, we're working on here. We're, so. we're, we're talking about taking the show on the road and going to... We're thinking we want to start small though. We kind of want to iron it out. I think we're gonna we're gonna do Leprechaun. We're gonna Fair try enough. We're gonna try and make a splash at Leprechaun. We'll see. Sounds you good. Know, there's, we're gonna try and have uh, some people run some games. Um, I might uh, debut the game I'm working on. We'll see what happens. You know, it could be crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that you might consider in the next two or three years. Gen Con recently starting having a playtest hall. Have you guys heard of that? Yes, I that was one of the reasons you. why we were we were really looking at it. Yeah, I mean, we, between between the two of us, we have just like so many, so many fucking ideas and need playtesting. So many. It's been going on for the last few years. I've been going there, and it's always busy. People love it. Yeah, I, I don't doubt it. I would love to check it out. I mean, even even if I didn't have anything to display there, I would enjoy just going up and down and like, you know, seeing what people are doing. That's pretty uh pretty awesome to see the creative process like that. Have you thought about hosting something like that here in Phoenix? I'll be honest, I hadn't. That could certainly be a very fun thing. I could see that being very popular saturday kind of event at any of the local venues and uh gamers are usually good about being uh honest in their feedback sometimes not the kindest but they're <laughs> honest <laughs> yeah yeah hey, that's good though i mean blunt force honest look i mean when you're making games gamers are the guys are gonna buy your games right so ultimately uh you want the honest feedback you know i can't remember if this was mike selinker or uh, jerry from penny arcade but one of them said something about how you can't really call your game play-tested until it's been run with none of the designers in the room. Yeah, huh? I'll take that. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually a good thought. Yeah, I'll take that. Um, Anyway, well, let's wrap. Let's, maybe you know, let's talk about that. So I hear you guys like RPGs, and I'm supposed to pretend like I give a damn about your freaking polyhedrals and all that. <laughs> um, What brings us together today is... uh. uh, uh the social contract at the gaming table. That's the, that's, that's the meat of our discussion today. Am I correct? Yeah, that's actually something I've held a couple of panels on at some of the recent PAX conventions, and we toss around all kinds of crazy theories about that. So uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you go ahead and lead the conversation then? How, okay. how, how do you want to start? Well, let's start with the definition, make sure we're all on basically the same. 
Sounds good to me. Without getting too formal, the social contract, as I define it, is both the spoken and unspoken expectations and assumptions that we have surrounding the gaming table. This could be both our social interaction expectations and expectations about how the game is going to be run. Okay. Okay. Sure. I'll take it. So, a few common examples. Social expectation could be everybody chips in five bucks for pizza. Social contract says, you know what, you want to eat, don't make one guy always pay for it. Sure. And it can also be implied with things like, hey, I'm running a Call of Cthulhu game. Okay, that's probably going to mean there are horror elements, this is going to be nasty, you might go insane, the monsters are much stronger than your heroes. So if you're thinking, awesome, I'm going to play my champion's character who fights a big monster, you are in for a bad time, and I owe it to you as a good GM to say, that's not what Call of Cthulhu is about. Hmm. So yeah. before before the game even starts. Yeah. Well, okay, sure. I mean, sure, sure. I mean, I feel like what you're describing kind of falls into the, just the realm of like basic communication, right? It is, but it's when that doesn't happen that some of the biggest problems I've encountered as a GM can happen. Okay. Um, there's a game called Little Fears, the role-playing game of childhood terror. Okay. It is a dark game where kids are placed in grave danger and monsters are trying to kill them. Uh-huh. And one GM, one year at, uh, I think it was Hexacon maybe, he ran that without giving a really good description of what is the game to people. Just, oh, this is a one-hour adventure? Sure, I'll slot it in. And midway through, people went, wow, this is not what I thought, and I'm <laughs> kind of unhappy. Huh. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I, I could see... I can see what you're saying there. So perhaps more of a of an in-play example. There are lots of different ways a party can be. Two of them I've seen are we kick in the door, we fight some monsters, they die. We've all gamed together for a while. We know what to do. The cleric's slinging out healing spells while the fighter's meat shielding them in the way. Sure, sure. Another group might be, okay, before we kick down the door, we need to talk. Which buff spells do we want? What buffs do you have active? And let's plan this. And if we don't have an understanding of which of those two groups we are, that could cause a lot of conflict during the session. Yeah. No, I mean, I really, yeah, yeah. I, I see exactly what you're saying. I mean, you're, you're kind of getting at the, ha- at the heart of, like, how gaming groups and how parties, like, fall apart. You know, I mean, like... Ben and I have have witnessed some spectacular flameouts over the years. Um, <laughs> as we've 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 gamed together yeah. for like two decades at this point, we've just I mean we've had some rows and we've had the, the the bitterness and the infighting that like takes place outside of the game and the like the personal relationships you know destroyed by shit that happened within like ostensibly like the umbrella of a game, you know. So, I mean, I guess I didn't necessarily think of some of these things that you're that you're referencing here as necessarily being part of the the social contract but but i'll take your point i'll 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 roll with it well another way we could go with this could be that sort of look at everybody around the table when we sat down for our first night of a new D &D campaign and someone's like hey uh i'm playing a chaotic evil rogue oh i'm playing a lawful good paladin how are we going to work this out and some groups are like "Eh, deal with it whatever and they might just set it aside. Don't worry about alignment. Yeah. Others might want to make this like a really big in-character RP where the paladin and the rogue talk and maybe egg each other on. 
like Cyclops and Wolverine, excellent yeah. example. Yeah. Uh, teamwork, but they still are constantly at each other. Sure. But then we also hear all the stories from various groups over the years of, yeah, and then this guy killed the NPC we were trying to save because he said, eh, I'm chaotic evil, it felt like the thing to do, and he totally destroyed our campaign, everyone else was unhappy. <laughs> yeah, now, now, <laughs> now that, to me, is at the heart of the social contract at the gaming table is just this is the these 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 flame outs you know what i'm saying that are always over something that is that is really kind of inconsequential you see what i'm saying like 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 um just uh, kind of like petty shit you know and it, it comes down to these things am i right well it's it's having us on the same page if we're playing say old world of darkness vampire the masquerade and you know, we're playing a Sabbat pack. Ben goes, okay, this is awesome. I want to be the ductus. We're going to climb the ranks. That bishop's going down and I'm taking his place. Okay, he's establishing we want a political heavy intrigue game with serious RP. And I go, cool. I'm a metalhead that's a shovelhead now. <laughs> and I kill anything that sasses me. This is not necessarily a good recipe. No, I mean, I see what you're saying. I, I, as a storyteller, I remain convinced that we can play both games for both people. That we can find a synthesis here. There's like a Venn diagram. You see what I'm saying? But it, but it, but it, it does require give and take amongst the two. That's the thing. Yeah, the character concepts are not exclusive. Sure. It's the players' attitudes that make this conversation or make this idea exclusive or non-exclusive. Especially if Ben and I have the ability to talk any time before the game actually starts, and I say, hey, I really think it'd be fun if I played a hyper-aggressive vampire that doesn't take anyone's shit and give you a chance to say, well, here's my concept. I have an idea how we could roll them together. Yeah, sure, exactly. Sure. But, I mean, really, yeah, and like, to me, and this, this comes from my perspective because I've spent m much more time behind the screen than in front of it. And um, it's to me, it's all about how the GM sets it up. You know, like, I would never pitch a vampire game without being like, well, this is kind of what I expect from it. Like, like, oh, you guys are all going to be in a biker gang, and you're going to be in Tijuana, and you're all going to... Everybody gets to start with a Harley Davidson and a machine gun. You know what I'm saying? Is Bruja or, the only clan <laughs> in the world? <laughs> well, also, Nosferatu and Gangrel. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but, um, like... Or, or I'd say like, oh, this this game takes place in like Vienna, and like everybody, you're all gonna play Tremere, and you're all gonna be in the same chantry. Go, you know what I'm saying? I mean, those are two like very different games, but those are set. And I always feel like I try as a storyteller to really set that tone early on, but then of course there have been notable failures, even with the a massive amount of front end work. Well, another thing that I would say a good storyteller needs to consider is spotlight time. Like, Ben has a very strong personality, he's very creative, so, for example, we're all sitting down to play our new Changeling game, and Ben pitches, hey, I own this nightclub, I have resources for, I have all these contacts, he has really made that nightclub a part of his character, yeah. and he wants us to tie in there, maybe I'm the bouncer, maybe you're the bartender, etc., and that's cool, but I, as the storyteller, might need to look around and see, okay, is everyone responding well to this? Or does it look like the players want to tell Ben this isn't our thing, but they're too nervous or they're afraid they're going to hurt his feelings? You know, yeah. Go go ahead, Ben. Go ahead. No, I I think that's interesting. Um, I guess I guess I don't look at this so much as as from the perspective of of gaming with people I haven't gamed with before. You know, 
I, I guess all these sort of things are sort of like, you know, uh, spilt milk at this point with a lot of the people I game with because we've already, you know, we, we kind of know how we all are at this <laughs> yeah. point. You know, there's no, there's really no surprises in who I am or who like, who like Dustin is or who Jeff is or who. Like but, but we, our group since I've been back from LA is radically different than before I left because at this point there's some people who have just kind of like made it's not like it's not like it in, in the past when we were like teenagers in our early 20s and people would like would like have like a uh, internecine drama where like oh I'm not talking to so and so but at this point I think people in good faith have just come to the conclusions that they don't want to role play with other people you know because because their styles don't suit one another anymore you know and the phrase I think that's important there is in good faith yeah because I need to have that trust. One of the things that I love as an adult gamer, as opposed to a teenage gamer, is I have a car, I can drive around the valley, so there's a lot more ability to pick and choose these are the people I want to game with, as opposed to, well, these guys live near me, or <laughs> yeah. they're in my dorm, so I'm going to game with this very small crew that maybe we only kind of get along. No, it's true. I mean, I think that a lot of the uh, worst experiences I've had as a GM were ones where I felt like I was trapped, where I was like, oh, I have to game with these guys, and if I don't, then I have no game, and I'm just going to be sitting at home by myself. Well, and I'm not sure if we should necessarily call this social contract or the part I'm about to mention just gamer etiquette, but it's being actively looking at how you're affecting the other people. Like, okay, I'm playing my guy, and I just, you know... I refuse to haggle with the merchant. I'm just threatening him, and if he doesn't sell me that thing at a discount, looks like my guy's going to start a fight. What would be better is, as I start that scene, I'm looking around, okay, does, do people look bored? Is this boring to them? Are they interested? Hell, do they want to build off of this? Are they uncomfortable? Like, Ben, it's just, you know, a merchant. Buy your goddamn broadsword and move <laughs> on. <laughs> well, I mean, there's that. There's the kind of, there's like the kind of like local theater guy who wants to turn like everything that he's doing, like no matter how mundane, into some like, like opportunity to do like uh, some some improvisational theater. But I guess when you say spotlight players, what I think about are just, what like the kind of guys, the kind of people rather, who um, they're very creative and they're kind of extroverted. And they are just always making story. So it's easy as a storyteller, as a GM, to kind of focus on them. Because they're the kind of people who are always like spitting something out at you. And it's very easy for you to riff on their stuff. And sometimes that happens at the expense of sort of like the attention that you give to other players. Who then, who then look to that person and say like, oh, we'll make things happen. Make things happen for the group. I'd say one of the dividing lines between a good and great gamer is that a good gamer generates story. A great gamer builds in plot hooks for the other characters in their story. So if I know, for example, that Ben's character is super connected to the underground, and I start a plot line where, like, I've got this magical ritual, and I really need a bunch of obscure illegal items, rather than just, hey, I want to roll my contacts, see if I can find someone. Yeah. Now, instead, it's, hey, Ben, here's what I need— and I'm letting him have this moment where abilities he's paid background points for are going to help him out as he feeds what I need. I guess those always are, to me, like the magical moments in like a vampire World of Darkness game when the characters start to sort of synthesize and bleed into one another, when they really 
are like kind of buffering each other rather than like tearing each other down or, or trying to divide up playtime. And those are the games that end up kind of like being like wheels that grind. The games where people don't reinforce one another and I end up feeling as a GM like I have to constantly be segmenting my time between like, okay, this is all you and then this is all you. Nobody ever starts moving together. You see what I'm saying? As a story. And it can also be manifested mechanically. Whereas if I'm weak on the rules knowledge, but I'm a super good RPer, Ben might just look at me and go, hey, if you spend your points this way and you have this particular item and this discipline, your character is going to be more mechanically effective. Yes, it's not in-game, but we're still having a real rapport as two players where he's shoring up my weakness. Ben has always been my rules guy. He's been my go-to <laughs> rules guy for Yeah, I do sort of that reputation, I guess. I guess De- it's sort decades. of assimilate the rules kind of easily. Um, I find that interesting. I, I sort of, I really, I think what I found the most interesting thing you said was the, the good players generate story and the great players generate story for others. Um, I was trying to think about, like, times and games where this has happened. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about the same thing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you got years of games to go over here. But I guess an example from our current D and D game might be uh, might be Jeff including us in the Black Library hunt. Yeah, I mean he seems very kind of like interesting, interested in expanding that kind of franchise to um, to the rest of the party. And, and um, I certainly want to bring them in, into my into my like desire of uh, world domination. So uh, uh, honestly, I think that this party that we're playing with right now is like one of the more mature parties with the we've played with even in like recent memory because. Um, even like the last few games that I've run, like games I ran in my thirties, you know what I'm saying? Is it like I'm like as a grown man, as they say, you know, we're kind of riven with some very um like immature problems, and uh, you say that like a good player uh generates story, like a great player generates story for others, and I my first thought was shit Ben like your standards are a lot higher than mine to me like a good player is just somebody who's not fucking me up and uh, uh, a great player is somebody who's like promoting the agenda of the story forward because I mean lord knows I've had so many people who I feel like sometimes I feel like they're sitting at the table and they're like working against me like 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 do do they want to be here they can be doing any other fucking thing it's it's Saturday night like, go live your life. Why are you even here? You know what I'm saying? Well, let me put you this way. Recently, I was GMing 5th edition D&D at Game Depot, our local game store, and uh, we're running the Out of the Abyss module. Uh-huh. I can't remember which party member it was, but one of the much more socially adept members of the party, who clearly also knew D&D backwards and forwards, uh-huh. the parties stopped, and they're in a Zverf Nebly town, I think. or No, Dwerger, that was it. And the very social character is sort of polling a few of the group, what should our next move be? Very tactical. And you can tell a few of the gamers are giving almost metagaming answers of what they should do. So this guy intentionally looks at the newest and most quiet player and really says, what do you think? Suddenly giving his character that focus where in reality the player doesn't know the tactics he probably doesn't have the greatest idea, but so what will give him a moment where in the world of the game, I can focus on my character respects your character, and it's not about the out-of-game time as a player. So yeah. that um, that would definitely be lifting up your fellow role players. 
And how was that received? Was that received very well? Oh, he loved it. Uh, the guy, to be fair, had to think for a second, and then he came up with an answer. And I don't even remember what it was. It wasn't, you know, some earth-shattering, this-solves-all-our-problems answer. Yeah. But it wasn't a bad answer, and that let the rest of the party have that moment of, oh, yeah, yeah, his idea is good. We'll, we'll go with that. Yeah. Just to help build up a newer gamer. Sure, yeah, and that's important. That stuff's important. Because we were all new gamers at one point, you know? You know, everybody had to have that moment where they started talking, you know? And, and, and it's intimidating. It's hard to be in a new group, you know? I guess that sort of makes me think a little bit differently about um, maybe uh, some of the opportunities that we can maybe provide. I guess because it's, it's interesting that in our in our group right now, we have one player who has very little experience compared to the rest of us. That's true. And um, maybe maybe I I'm, some of us aren't doing enough that we can do to sort of like shore that up. It's a problem because my group right now, we have um, five players, and three of them have been gaming together for like, I don't know, fucking 10, 15 years. Or so they're going to have some really tight bonds. Yeah, and they and, and, and they just have a chemistry, and they know how each other work, and they, you know, at this point, Ben, you know what's going on with Jeff before Jeff does it, and, you know, Jeff, know, can, Jeff can anticipate you, and like uh, Dustin, who plays Kale the Paladin, like he... He's the he's the junior member of the group, and he's been playing with us for ten years now. Yeah. You know, so it's like now then we have two other people like Heather's Heather's new Heather's new to gaming and Heather's new to the group, and then we have Alex who's new to the group, but um I can tell just on the way that we've interacted over the course of the last couple of months that like the style of gaming that we do in my group is 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 really different than what he's used to doing. So. Let me give you two very different examples of GMing mindset that I think could be at play here. Mm -hmm. um, take any stereotypical vampire game. Yeah. Um, a new player arrives. Many GMs have the tendency to give them a neonate, a low-power character, because that way, mechanically, you've got fewer rules to deal with, and you're not going to be expected to do as much, quote-unquote, in-game as someone who's, say, an eighth-generation Justicar. Yeah. But that may be less fun for the new player. Contrast that to a game called Houses of the Blooded, a LARP that used to be run here in Phoenix for a time, where you're all playing these decadent magical nobles. Mm -hmm. um, John Wick was the author of the game, and he and I believe Gillian Fraser were running the LARP. One of the policies they had is that if you showed up as a new player, you got handed an NPC who was probably more powerful than every PC that night. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't because they wanted them to win the fight or have a numbers advantage. They just wanted to say, hey, new player, let's have some fun. Let's get you immediately involved in the plot. So rather than you being the same level noble as everyone else, pff, you're a duke. You've got vast estates and titles, and you've got retainers, and these people are now coming to you, giving you, new player, interesting plot and maybe you're not going to keep this character but so what roll with it and sure. i am trusting you social contract that you're not going to go crazy and be like the duke declares war on all of you <laughs> and the new players very much wanting to impress this gaming group tried their best to play the npc well to not abuse their power but instead enjoyed having an instant in for the game sure sure I guess I haven't done too much LARPing, but I think that uh, the little bit of LARPing that I have done with people who I don't generally game with all the time uh, was that 
I think I had the exact opposite experience where like coming in we all got like neonate characters. No, that's not true. I had a neonate character. No, I had a, I had a badass character, but it didn't matter. <laughs> that's that's the that's the way that game went. Well, and, and we can all acknowledge that a veteran gamer who is also socially adept sure. can be handed a mechanically weak character and be one of the most powerful players there that night. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I definitely uh Definitely I guess I, I definitely like cast some ripples that night too. Sure, yeah, yeah. We were definitely definitely kind of rocked the boat that evening with our with our gaming style, and especially with LARP, I've found a part of the social contract that matters is trust your GM not to screw you over. I've seen instances where the GM would drop a plot hook, like let's say a lost wallet, for a character to find that night. And experienced players might not actually trust that GM. They don't want to pick up the wallet because they know. It's going to be attached to some important NPC who's, of course, going to show up angry and looking for it. Yeah. Conversely, other players who do have trust that the GM is not actively out to get them. Yeah, I pick up the wallet. Oh, cool. He's got a coupon for a free donut. Ah, whatever. I'll go have a donut. And if he comes by, he comes by because that player is willing to trust whatever the GM's got in mind isn't going to unfairly penalize my character for choosing to be involved in that plot thread. See, that, and that is all I've been trying to say to my players in various iterations of my group over the course of the last 20 years, which is like whatever, however much you give to this game is how is, is you, you'll get back to it, get back from it equally or more so, you know, I mean like, I don't, I have I ever been like one of those weird power mad GMs that just like, that just fucking throws lightning bolts from the heavens because I think I'm a deity or something. I'm not that guy. Am I? No, I don't do that shit. And uh, it's not it, to me the GMing game is not like a power trip, you know. Um, and I know that there's people out there who do that, and I and and I never it never ceases to to boggle my mind when people show up at my table and they're like afraid of me. You know what I'm saying? They're afraid of engaging in the story because they don't want something bad to happen to their character. It's like well, on some level, first of all, some bad stuff is going to have to happen to your character because you know conflict is the essence of drama. All right, but second of all, like you gotta trust me that whatever happens, you're gonna come through it in such a way that's gonna be fun, not just for me, but for you. You know, and that also is built with time. Just as you were saying, having a play group together for so many years means the players can predict their actions. Having the same GM for a time, it it doesn't even take years, but just a couple of months, you can start to learn hey, maybe I don't need to pull out this rule or this argument against what's going on because I know the GM is going to go somewhere with it. Yeah, sure, let's set the rule aside, or I don't have to say, well, my character totally wouldn't have done that. If I know he's going somewhere, I'm down to see where it leads. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, so I mean, I have that. I, I feel like I have that trust with certain people in my group. I have, I have that trust with certain people. The question, sure. Question, I think with with the majority of us, if not sure. all of us. Well, not all. I mean, I can't say all of you right now because Heather is too new to it, and Alex is still trying to figure me out, and I'm still trying to figure him out. Well, you know? another aspect of that is the player group trusting the GM, not just to throw interesting encounters at them, but not to throw disgusting or unsettling encounters. And I mean the difference between just like, okay, yeah. You're a party of fourth-level adventurers. I'm not going to sick an Elder Red Dragon on you. That's unfair. <laughs> Similarly, I might know out of game... Mistakes of youth. Yeah. I might happen to know out of game, Brendan really hates violence against women. 
So I, as a GM, might need to say, oh, I was going to have a plot line where they find a woman who's just been brutally mugged in an alley lying in a pool of her own blood. Maybe I should do something else for that because it's really going to upset the real person behind the character. Sure. Yeah, I feel you, you know. What? And, of course, it has limits. Like, we're all adults. I don't actually think anyone is going to be upset if I just say, you come across a woman who's been mugged, she's beaten and crying. Right. Well, that's just an example. I mean, but, just, we were, this is worth the idea. But, like, I've actually had players tell me, and this is a true example, Ben, I really hate violence against children. I don't care what happens, but can there be no violence against kids in the game? Sure, I wasn't expecting there to be, but now I absolutely know I'm not going to have that as a plot element ever with that player. Huh. I don't know. What do you think? What are you thinking? I, I'm sort of conflicted on this, right? Like, um, As am I. I guess I feel like... All right. When when you enjoy a, a, a truly great story, right? Um, like, it happens in film. It happens in novels. It happens all over the place. Um you know, sometimes that revulsion that happens in certain things uh, really adds to the story and makes it more memorable. I can certainly think about, like, lots of movies I've seen over the years um, and a few games that I've played in over the years where the fact that I was revolted by something that I had seen or, or, or listened to um, certainly added to the, the height, the, the enjoyment I got out of it in the end, you know? I, I guess the thing is, is that, you, Ben, you and I... After all these years, what we come from this super background of horror gaming. We do fantasy gaming, but all of our fantasy gaming has a horror tinge to it. And then the thing that we do the most is we or at least we used to do the most is White Wolf stuff. <coughs> so there's it's part of the social contract of our group, I think, is when you show up, is it's gonna be a horror game. And I and back to communication, is I didn't communicate that to Alex. And I think he was really taken aback by like because I'm running out of the mm. abyss, and I'm running it like essentially like, like this video drone, Call of Cthulhu, and he was expecting a Forgotten Realms game, you know. Okay. So that, and that was, so that was like radically different than what he had necessarily intended to show up when he showed up to play, and I did not do a good job communicating that. I will definitely cop to well, that. Well, another right away. example um, taken from real games I've seen is the GM having a sense of what rating level you could almost say the players want. Like, do we want a PG-13 Forgotten Realms adventure where there's an archmage with a mustache twirling around as a villain, or do we just want some really simple, nasty-looking, R-rated thugs who are going to beat your character senseless while calling them every racial slur in the book? You know, yeah, I mean, this is difficult. I actually have a player who... There was one time, okay, let's get into some autobiography here. Go for it. The, I, I, I have a player who I used to play with, and he doesn't get to play much anymore. Um, and he pulled out of a Giovanni Chronicles game that I was running um, years ago. I mean, we're talking like the 90s, okay? And for the first couple of sessions... I had a co-storyteller based on um, what you know, one of those ideas in the back of the various storytellers' guides, where they're always trying to get you to do a wacky shit and turn it like you know, like blur the lines between role playing and like improvisational theater, you know. And so I was like, okay, well, if you recall the Giovanni Chronicles, which is for Vampire the Dark Ages slash Vampire the Masquerade, um, if that 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 campaign, uh, 
it starts out in a castle, and there's like a huge cast, a huge cast of NPCs. Well, one thing I think we should mention before we go any further is for those who are not familiar with Vampire, Giovanni as a clan have a very dark reputation. They are necromancers. Yeah. They are brutal, and they do not hesitate to seize power, and their source books make this clear up to and including a character that is a necrophiliac. Sure. Sure, and there's a lot of incest in those in that in that in that book too. Not in that book, but in, that, in some of those books. So just saying aside, I just wanted to set the stage for who the Giovanni are. Sure, sure, and um, also at that time, that particular module was, was published under a sub imprint of the White Wolf label called Black Dog. They're supposed to be all like adults only games. You had to be like eighteen. You you quote unquote had to be eighteen to buy them. Um, and so I had this. I had this co-storyteller and he's helping me with this huge cast of npcs and there's this uh series of vignettes that happen where particular player characters get taken aside by a vampire and get kind of like seduced into darkness by them and we split them between the two of us right to make it more time efficient and so people wouldn't be sitting around being bored all night and after that session one of my players quit and he and I had been kind of like beefing. We were young guys, and we were kind of like bumping chest a little bit. And I thought that he quit because we were um, – he was another GM, and I thought maybe we were kind of like drinking from the same well too much, and he just didn't want to be involved in the game. I'm guessing that wasn't the actual case. Literally like two months ago, I thought – maybe a month ago, I find out that during his prelude, his vignette, the co-storyteller had taken him aside – and done this like very like sexually graphic vignette, and rather than just being like, like because I think what the guy said was like, oh, so uh, I I take the female or whatever and I do some sex stuff, and then the storyteller dude was like, well, no, what do you do? And he's like, what do you mean what I do? He's like, no, tell me what you do. Like like he wanted him to get through a kind of like work role play through a kind of like thrust by thrust kind of like porno with him and just made him super uncomfortable and he punched out of the I, game. I, <laughs> yeah, I guess I could see that. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, right? In that guy's defense, I don't really know all the details, but we often say that to our players. If you guys are in my D&D game and you come up to the ogre guarding the castle and Ben says, hey, I want to roll diplomacy and convince the ogre to let me in, I'm going to say, no, 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 what do you actually say to the ogre then we'll talk about dice rolls. Sure, sure. And I can see that. I mean... <sighs> but it's a very different thing. It's generally it, it accepted. Is. Sexuality is a much more emotional and intimate thing in our culture than trying to convince a gate guard to let you through. You know, I think that we've had multiple hiccups with sexuality in, in your game. It yeah. wasn't just that. It was the Anastas threesome that like really like... Yeah, there was, there was another game that, that I ran where... Um, there was uh, two characters were playing humans. They were humans at the time, right? Yes. Uh, then, no. Well, I mean, the details of it are I think they were heroes. They were humans when they started, and then they turned into vampires later. Yeah. So they got, the, through the use of the, the application of the presence discipline, which makes vampires feel more sexy and attractive and stuff for our listeners, um, these two humans kind of got like um, persuaded into like a threesome with this vampire. And the female character, the female player who was playing that, was totally uncomfortable with the situation, and she was, I think, irate with me, even though I did not, 
I didn't. I wasn't like. I wasn't like. So then the music comes on and he starts. And I, I didn't describe anything. I basically was like, okay. No, it was so, very tame. Was yeah, very I was like, tame. I was like, yeah. Basically, he uses this stuff and like, and then you guys go in the room and you and things happen. And but, that, and that really pissed her off. But just the concept that we effectively have magical roofies leading to sex. Even if it's not directly on screen, can be very upsetting. I can see where it would be, but but in in my defense on that one, I felt like we had definitely like spelled it out that like this is the this that we play vampire, we play it in an adult way, we play it with like hard themes, and we play it for horror. And this is kind of what I was getting to earlier about the horror gaming. Like sometimes horror is about shock, and sometimes it's about revulsion. You know what I'm saying, and um, and when you go to a horror movie, you can't be like, "Oh, I'm pissed that like people are are being uh, killed with chainsaws." You know, yeah, and that's I, that, that's that's, I, a, that's I, a horror I like movie. The movie analogy. I I was thinking about it myself, and and I was thinking about like, what are some of the things I? Now, granted, I'm not going to say like I'm going to go ahead and watch a Serbian film or anything like that because I'm not going to do that. I don't particularly like those types of movies. Sure, but on some of the movies that are are sort of like less uh, grindhousey or whatever. Um, that are like um, that are st- still found very revolting, right? For instance, let's take like Requiem for a Dream, which I find that movie to be incredibly yes, revolting, super horrifying. Level. Yeah, it's very it's, it, it, a great movie, wonderful movie. I've only seen it once, and I'm not going to see it again. Yeah, clearly. Um, and and what that movie would have been like if I'd have gotten it towards towards like towards the end, I'd just been like, well, I'm gonna turn it off now, <laughs> you know? Like, but like here's the thing: the big difference is we're talking about passively receiving something in the sense of watching a film or going to a gallery and seeing some art versus actively participating in the case of a RPG. Yes, your player might not have directly been involved, say, in the presence threesome, but they're a part of the game that's close enough that this is now an active thing they are involved in as opposed to the separation that occurs between film and audience. I just, I don't know, man. I don't know. Let me put you a different way. Go ahead. Go like ahead. Give if me... we're at a gallery and there's an American flag in the toilet for one of the art exhibits. Sure. I can talk about, I find that offensive, it's stupid, etc. But it is a passive thing. It is already there. All I can do is either elect to perceive and engage with it or say that ain't my thing and walk to the next exhibit. Whereas in a game, generally, and I do want to come back to this, it is very hard mid-session to go, guys, I'm totally not liking where this is going. And that's why some groups will have rules about, say, just, we're going to draw the curtain over that and move on to the next scene, or we're going to invoke the X card, because that way the player is still able to continue the narrative flow, but stop that. Because with art, we can talk about, you know, what did the artist mean? Are you really understanding it in the correct way? Maybe you need a little more information, and then the artist's message will make sense. But at the end of the day, 99.9% of RPGs are not about understanding this artistic story. They're about True, having yeah. fun with your buddies. Right. And if you are not having fun with your buddies, the RPG is failing in its main goal. No, I mean, I totally take you on that. I guess my, my rebuttal is that that um like you you liken this to art and i'm going to liken it to something like um going to a haunted house right on halloween so like by I, by going i'm saying i know you're going to scare me yeah. no you're going to try to make me freak out yeah. there's an element of consent when you cross the threshold when you sit down at the table and as and i don't want to sound like a libertarian here or anything but like but but you have a burden of responsibility on yourself to be informed about what it is that you're doing 
And if what you're doing, if if you get yourself in over your head, then then as a GM, then I have I of course have an obligation to be merciful. I have an obligation to say, oh okay, sorry, hey, we won't do that, won't happen again. And with that character, we never did anything like that again. That's true. But the but to be miffed that it happened at all the first time struck me as galling because it's like it's like it's like what you came to the haunted house and it says haunted house and it says the goriest haunted house in the world and now you're angry that there's people being like chopped up in front of you well, i mean like that's what we're doing here you know here's the thing though i can't tell you what i don't know at best i can give you a general idea of well i know this much but i can't tell you oh i don't really understand the presence discipline if i don't know shit about vampire yeah so on the one hand you're absolutely correct. The player does have a duty to inform themselves, what is this game? Yeah. Similarly, the GM has a duty to inform them, this is that kind of game. Perhaps even more fundamentally, the GM should determine somehow how experienced is this player. If Ben tells me, I've been playing D&D for 20 years and White Wolf for two, I'm going to make very different assumptions than if he says, I've played nothing but Warhammer Fantasy. I really want to try something else now. And... And two two points. Um, she was a new player. She was new. She was new-ish. Okay, that's like against me, I guess. Which is why I felt like I was giving her kind of the kid gloves. But in my defense, the character that she pitched to me was my character is kind of like Anita Blake, and I know what's in those Anita Blake novels. They're like <laughs> orgies. It's it's porn for ladies, and I didn't do anything even close to that. Well, I think we need to sort of step aside for a moment, and we're human. Humans make mistakes, and one of the benefits here is this is a hobby, not, say, a scholastic presentation. Sure. Yeah. In school, it might be, no, no, Ben, I am the teacher. I am a master of this subject. You deserve to be, and here's why. No, I, I get that. I get that. And I guess where, where I'm coming from is... Is as a person who's at the game and who's witnessing the game and who's also taking part in the game because I'm not necessarily in every scene. I'm not necessarily involved yeah. in everything that's happening. Right. Um, I get that, that someone's uncomfortable with that. I get that. I I'm cool with I'm cool with that person saying, you know what, I really want to chill it out. Let's not have that happen to my character again. Well, and that's the thing. Both the players and the GMs have the ability to forgive each other. Because yeah. I can clearly look at Brandon and see is he trying to be a dick. Or is he just running his game? And I happen to not like that. We're going to talk about it. But it's absolutely cool because I know he's not a dick in real life. Sure. What I, I guess what I have a problem with, though, at that point is that saying that that can't happen for any character in the game. You know what I mean? Mm. That that content's off limits for scenes that that person's not involved in. <laughs> yeah, like you were saying, this, the person who like put the kibosh on like violence against children, for instance. Yes and no. Because it might be totally valid that whether it's violence against children seduction or other things it's not happening to my character but i the person am sitting here and does that mean i now have to go into the kitchen get myself a snack and sort of look out around the corner is the scene over <laughs> can i come back now i know plenty of people that watch movies that way <laughs> true true and to be, and to be totally honest i think that that's valid like, I do a lot of, uh, especially I'm doing World of Darkness gaming, I do a lot of stuff, like, one-on-one, -on -one where I'll be like, okay, you guys go take a break or whatever. I'm just going to do this thing with this thing. We're going to try and keep it fast. Just one-on-one -on -one stuff. And um, if somebody's like, you know what? I don't want to be here for, like, the fucking gross torture mutilation scene. That's cool. Step out. I mean, that's fine. Because I feel like that's something you can do in a movie, too. And you're in a movie. You have the... You have the um, 
the ability to disengage. Yeah, my, I, I, you know, point of point of point of fact here. My mom, she'll watch movies all the time, and when it gets to something she finds uncomfortable, she leaves the room. She comes back and she's like, "Did they die?" You know, and it's like <laughs> it's like, "Yeah, mom, it happened." Okay, like it's over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess my ethos is just like a little bit like, I don't know, more. It's a, I'm a little bit more confrontational. I think you're. I think I I, I understand where you're coming from. And I'm not against it. I'm I'm happy that it works well for you. And it's, it, I've definitely had to pay the price a couple times for my way of doing it, because I try to be nice and I try to be open and communicative about this stuff. But at the end of the day, I have a much more kind of like um, James Reggie kind of like. Don't like, know who that is. Oh, he's the Lamentations of the Flame Princess writer. Oh yeah. He's the he's the he's the he's the creator of that line, and 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 he's and he's known for having a sort of uh, combative online persona. Yeah. And for, and for, and for like, and for pushing, and for pushing, and being like, like, oh, you don't think that like torture and mutilation should be in role playing games? Here's a role playing game entirely about torture and mutilation, you know. And so let me give two real techniques I use as a GM about that. The first one is simple but super effective, and that is having tryout game days. Yeah. If I'm trying to yeah. form a new group with, let's say, maybe I know everybody but one person. Or I know everybody, but I know them from separate arenas or separate groups. I'll set up a day. Either it's a one-shot scenario like Fiasco, or maybe we're just going to play some board games and talk. And I, as GM, I'm going to see how does everyone interact. That yeah, could have no. saved us some problems with a couple of the groups we've had over the years. You know, well, okay. Sure, yeah, but also no, because... I mean, without getting into too much biography here, like the some of the other problems that we had were due to things outside of games. Oh, you know absolutely, it won't fix every problem, but I actually no, did... but something with vetting new players, though. Yes, um, I actually when I did that recently for one group, um, they're all t- talking and sharing stories of my character did this awesome thing, and one of them is sharing a story about a White Wolf game because he knows okay everyone here plays White Wolf, mm-hmm. so he talks about uh, I think it was a mage game. And there's this old Russian woman that, that he needs information from. So he ties her up on a chair, beats her a bit, then goes into the kitchen, uh, puts a pot on the stove, dumps some nails into the pot, and starts heating them up. Doesn't even say what he's going to do with them, uh-huh. but just shows this to the old woman who capitulates and starts telling him everything he wants to know. Yeah. And just hearing that story retold, one of the other gamers later told me, I don't want to play with that guy. That is way more hardcore than I like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is pretty hardcore. I mean, like, like when you're just talking about, like, uh, oh, I'm interrogating a person. I mean, that's, like, like very, like, detailed yes. and, 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 and kind of skin-crawling. I mean, it's also it's horrifying. It is horrifying. Yeah, I can see it happening in some of our games. And the funny thing in that case was the player telling the story admitted he had no idea what the nails were for. He was just trying to think of the nastiest, creepiest things his character could be doing. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I like the improv there. And the other thing, a couple minutes ago, I mentioned something called the X card, which is a concept that came out recently. I'm looking through the book trying to find it. So uh, You're looking through uh, Urban Shadows, right? Yes. We both uh, we got two copies of Urban Shadows here. Urban Shadows is kind of an interesting game. Um, you know, Maybe we'll write something about it or talk about it online but it's like it's worth looking taking a look at the x card is introduced and d- explained on page 24 okay great so first to give credit where credit is due the concept was created by john stavropoulos and he 
has put it online. If you just Google X-Card RPG, you'll find it. And the idea is that you put some marker, maybe it's a card, on the table, mm -hmm. and we're now in stated social contract. Anyone can tap the card at any time during game, and that means whatever the current action is instantly finishes, no one asks questions about it, and we move on to the next moment in the scene or to an entirely new scene. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that's the perfect fit for all groups, Yeah. but at least that is saying to the table, here is a mechanic you can invoke that puts it in your hands to remain comfortable. Yes, it's not cool if I'm intentionally trying to freak you out, but on the other hand, if I do something that I think is perfectly normal and you don't say anything and you don't tap the X card, I have no way to expect that I should have stopped doing this thing, whatever it is. I get that. I get that. I, I, I think that that's definitely a, a useful tool when you're sort of like, I guess, sort of plumbing the depths of where you can go with your games with people you don't play with, right? Um, I guess, yeah, I, I can see that. I can definitely see the use for that. I, I just, I, a lot of the horror gaming I do, I guess I just don't, I, I don't, I don't want to do the horror gaming with the people who aren't already on the same page. Which with that. is totally fair. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. Another mechanic that I thought worked very well for this actually comes from the old game Seventh Sea, very swashbuckling focused game. Uh, in the GM's guide, it has a ballot for the players to fill out at the start of a campaign. And the ballot has questions about genre. On a scale of one to ten, you mark how interested you are in adventure romance, discovery, swashbuckling on the yeah. high seas, <laughs> uh, intrigue, etc. So you then get these cards from all the players and you can see what are your players interested in. Now I do like that. I could see using something like that. It's not going to work so well if you have a very specific, very linear storyline planned out. But if you've only got a basic storyline that you're going to be filling in as you play, and I see, you know, everyone put intrigue at a seven or higher... All right, definitely going to make intrigue a big part of this. Even without, even if you have a storyline planned out, I mean, a lot of that goes towards tone at that point. You know, like, uh, like you can certainly tell a very similar story that's more focused on intrigue and more fo one more focused on like just overt violence, for instance. And it can help me customize it to the characters because if I look at Brendan's sheet and I see that he put romance at a ten out of ten, no one else was really interested. I now know I should have at least some minor side plot for Brendan's character where romance will occur. Yeah, or to take me aside and say, like, hey, I don't know if you're going to get out of this game what you want to get out of it because it's just this is just not what we're doing, you know? I mean, like, everybody else wants this to be, like, what, you know, like like pirates on the on the high seas, like, plundering and shit. We're just we're not really going to have the time for it. I mean, I, I can see it both ways. Or as a GM, maybe I'm sitting down plotting out the session. I think, okay... I know Ben's had a plot line going with the old treasure map, so I need to factor that in somewhere in the next few sessions. And Megan has trying to break her father out of prison as her side plot. And Brendan had his uh, 10 out of 10 on romance. So it's going to be really easy, say, to involve the entire group on that treasure map plot. And the rescuing her father plot maybe will involve the group, maybe not. Um, but I know that I can give both of those plot lines some amount of story time without boring the other players. So I can probably take five to ten minutes once per session or once every other session to give you some one-on-one -on -one romance scene. 
and most gamers are probably going to just, you know, lean back and go, all right, cool, entertain me. I got Cheetos to eat, and this will let me <laughs> catch my breath, so yeah. go, romance away. I mean, like, like, I have definitely heard from Ben, like, a number of times that it's fun to sit back and watch sometimes. I mean, I I guess I've experienced it where it's fun to sit, sit back and watch. I just don't play as much oh, as man. I run. Some of, some of the I, – I can think back to some really memorable scenes that my character wasn't a part in, you know, like, did wasn't there, didn't take around, wasn't wasn't – you know, uh, really had very little connection to, if any at all, and they were a blast to witness. Well, let's look to cinema for an answer. Often the best scenes for developing characters are quiet scenes. Like One of my favorite scenes from Episode 4, A New Hope, is when they're on the Millennium Falcon traveling to Alderaan. It's not really fast-paced, mm-hmm. there's absolutely no threat to the characters, and you get to see little things like Chewie playing a game with the droids mm-hmm. or Luke fumbling through his practice session. And that just lets us see a bit more of their humanity as opposed to them at their most action-packed heroic level. Similarly, when Ben's sitting out a scene watching you and I have a really intense conversation about what we're going to do with that girl who snubbed us, it gives him time to enjoy learning more about our characters in a way you just can't when the action is high. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That is a good point. I don't know. I just, I guess, I guess I just don't really think about these kind of things so often. Uh, mostly because I, over the last, like, I don't know, I want to say, God, it's been 20 some years at this point. Um, it's very rare that we actually game with different people. I mean, yeah, the same people I've been gaming with, we've been gaming with for a really long time. And you're going to have organically, naturally learned where their boundaries are, what interests sure. them. Sure. And there even then, I guess we just found out that one of the players' boundaries was different than than, or I guess his boundary was pushed only two months ago. You found this out, right? His boundary was pushed. What we're talking about, Alex? Uh, uh, we were talking about Adam. the Giovanni. Oh, oh, right, right, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Well. Yeah, and I did. I had no idea that the guy who was running that session f- on my behalf, that he was the, his intention was to go in that direction, and I had never told him that that is the direction that he should go. Well, and some of these skills might matter more depending on the GM situation. If it's same six friends for ten years, this is going to be a little less important than say a GM who only runs games three times a year at a major convention. Yeah, and he runs them for people he probably has never met before. So, so what, I mean, I have to ask, what are you, what are you running right now? What are you? I'm running a Pathfinder Adventure Path called Jade Regent. Oh, okay. Yeah, you you told me about this. And I'm running a second Pathfinder Adventure Path called Carrion Crown. Mm-hmm. Right now, those are the only games I'm running. I'm getting to play in a couple of other games. What are you playing in? So you'll notice Pathfinder shows up a lot. Um, <laughs> I have the wonderful honor of having gotten to see my friend Bonnie go from totally new to RPGs to enjoying playing RPGs to now running one, and she's GMing a Pathfinder set called uh, the Iron God. This is the Bonnie that I know, correct? I Married to Jeff? Yes, that Bonnie. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, so that's been wonderfully fun. And... Those are a- that's actually it. Um, we were playing a wonderful fifth edition D and D game with my friend Eric, running basically D and D's version of the TV show Supernatural, where a bunch of us are playing siblings dealing with crazy monster hijinks. But in real life, 
one of the members of that group passed away in the oh, fall. Jesus. And while we all loved the story, we all just sort of simultaneously nod and went, we cannot continue this campaign without him. Maybe a year from now, we'll do one or two episodes to wrap up the story. But there is no way we could continue that right now, though we have all continued gaming together. Hmm. Well, that's good. That's good. My understanding is you wanted to run a game for us at some point. I'd love to because I've known you for ages, though I actually didn't know you were as into RPGs as you are. True, though Though I, I will tell the story that uh, uh, I did play with you yes. once years and years ago. One of my very first experiences was AD&D at a local nerd hangout. <laughs> the Lion's Den for those yeah. that... Uh, live in Phoenix and maybe remember this place. I don't remember how young I was at the time, but I built a ranger because young Ben thought rangers were the best class, period. And I didn't really understand how religion worked in gaming, so I just went, well, I'm a Jew in real life. I know what Jews believe. I'll make my character a Jew. <laughs> so <laughs> That I, sounds course, amazing, dude. <laughs> I die horribly in the first session. We, we fight some sort of demon, and it mangles me. And the other players are being nice, and they, they're talking about, well, we'll give his character a proper burial. Oh, we'll cremate him. Yeah, we're in the wilderness. We don't really have time for much else. We'll cremate him. You can't cremate him. He's a Jew. Jews don't believe in <laughs> cremation. And they all sort of look at me and go, uh, you have to choose a made-up religion. This is in the Forgotten Realms. And <laughs> Jews don't exist in the Forgotten Realms. So, so wait, you hadn't you hadn't told them until that point. It was like, it, it <laughs> well, was, no it one was, asked. <laughs> it's not like I did was you write it on your character sheet? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that is great. Do you still have the character sheet? Oh Lord, no. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> that's too bad. But I, I remember it was a fun night, and uh, gaming definitely had hooked me by that point, even if I was still learning how the hell it worked. Sure. No, I hear you. I hear you there. Well, guys, this has been a sprightly conversation. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's been really fun joining you guys. Yeah, it's been a blast. Yeah, I, I do hope that you'll come back. Ben. If uh, my voice doesn't make your listeners' ears bleed too much, that just may happen. Hey, man, you know about me. I'm about pushing boundaries. So even if it does. Ears bleeding pretty metal anyway. Especially if it does. <laughs> All right, great. Thanks for coming by, Ben. Thank you to everybody for listening. We really appreciate you. And uh, we'll see you soon for another episode. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to another episode of Full Metal RPG. Our guest was Ben Mandel. Our break music was I Didn't Ask You for a Life Lesson by Blode. We're still live and kicking on Instagram, Facebook, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Thank you to Legion, once again, for the use of Abyssal Planes. And if you haven't yet, please check out our shop on Etsy. Search Full Metal RPG, one word, or Blasphemous Tones. Thank you. Have a good night.